Hear God's word. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in the hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope, and hope does not disappoint us, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received the reconciliation. If you remember from last week, I said there were four ways that you can tell the depth of somebody's love for you when they do an act of love. There are four ways that this act of love is shown to be deep or not so deep. The first way was by the costliness of the love, the sacrifice that you make in loving. If it costs you an afternoon of sweat and time, that's one love. If it costs you your arm or your kidney or your life, that's, that's love in a different way, a deeper way. A second way to measure the depth of someone's love for you is by how undeserving you are of it. If uh, you have treated someone badly for a long, long time, what overwhelms you is if they come back at you with kindness. If you've been close friends and there's been reciprocal kindness all the way along, then love is one thing. If there's animosity and love overcomes it, that's another. Jesus said, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax gatherers do the same. If you greet your brothers only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. In other words, if... If your love is the kind that it just goes out where it gets reciprocated, it's one kind of love. It's very common love. It's very natural love. There's nothing divine about it. But if there is resistance coming back to you, or opposition, or insult, or anger, or indifference, and you still keep lavishing on love, then that love is deeper than the other kind of love. So the second way you discern the depth of love is by how undeserving the recipients are. The third way is 
the greatness of the benefit that comes from loving. Next week's text is 1 John 3, 1. Behold what manner of love the Father has shown to us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. You see what that is saying? The manner of love is deeper and greater because of how wonderful is the benefit. It's one thing to claim to make a sacrifice to somebody, for somebody, and no benefit goes to them. If no benefit comes, you start to wonder as the beloved, well, they might be making a sacrifice, but I'm not, I'm not feeling any benefit coming from this so-called love. And so one of the components that makes love look greater and deeper is that tremendous benefits flow out from it. And the greater the benefit, the more amazing the love. And finally, we know the depth of someone's love by the freeness of it. How free they are in loving. I had a very powerful experience of that this week. If you, if you say for 10 or 15 years to your son, um, now, his birthday is coming up and you should buy him a birthday present, or card, and give it to him and sign your name and say something significant to your brother. <laughs> and uh, you might have to buy the card for him or the gift. And when it happens, that is a kind of love. It is. But when, in the first year away from home, at age 19, from Georgia, you get a long-distance phone call a week before Barnabas' birthday. And Ben says, Barnabas' birthday is coming up. And there's a knife sharpener at the gun shop down at the corner of Lake Street and whatever the cross street is. And I know he likes it because I remember from a year ago when I bought him a knife there, he looked at it. And uh, I want you to get it for him and take the money out of my account. Would you do that? That's another kind of love, isn't it? That's different. And you say, something's happened here. There's nobody calling him up and saying, don't forget Barnabas' birthday. Friday. Freeness. Freeness. That's what we'll talk about Easter Sunday morning. Now, last week we did number one. The sacrifice that Christ made for us signals powerful love for us. He gave his life. He gave his all. And what a life it was. Pure and holy and sinless and pure and loving and kind and tender and gentle and wise and divine. And he laid it all down for us. He lost Everything in that moment with his own father's wrath put upon him. And that showed the depth of his love. Now today, I want us from this text to focus on the greatness of his love, not measured by its sacrifice, but measured by our unworthiness of it. That's what this text is about. Now keep in mind that my aim in this little mini-series of four, under the bigger series of the greatest of these is love, the aim of this is to sink our roots down into the love of God for us, so that we become firm people, stable, not able to be blown over by difficulties and opposition, and that we have the nutriment of this love that we're going to be talking about, the nutriment coursing through the... the uh, 
whatever you call those biological tubes in trees, I can't remember them, but some of you can from biology, coursing through those into the branches so that fruit comes out on our lives so that we can taste of each other's fruit in this church. That's the goal that we'll be moving after Easter into. What does the fruit look like? How does it get born? But now we're talking about the soil, this bottomless, tremendously deep love that God has for us so that our roots can go down deep and we can begin to draw on it so that when I begin to talk about what love looks like, it won't feel like a a kind of extraneous added burden, it will feel like the natural outflow of all this stuff, glorious stuff that we've been talking about. That's, that's the goal and that's the plan. Jesus loved us in all four of those ways in an incomprehensible degree. And that, that's a key word because it comes from Ephesians. Incomprehensible. The love of Christ is beyond comprehension. So the question I begin with right here for our text is. How can I have any confidence at all that in preaching about the love of Christ for you, you will come to have a profound inner authentic experience of the love of God for you? Where do I get the hope? On what does my hope rest that that could happen right now? Which it, which it did for people in the first service as I read some notes that were handed to me after the service. And my prayer is that the same would be happening right now. Where can I rest my confidence that as I in the next few minutes talk about the love of God for us, it will actually happen in you. Now, the answer to that is given in the text. Let's start with verse 3 of Romans 5. He calls you to exult in tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. Perseverance brings about proven character. Proven character brings about hope. Hope does not disappoint because the love of God. Now, I think that means God's love for us, not our love for him because of what the next verses say. Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So here's the basis of my hope. My hope is based on the fact that as you sit there, the Holy Spirit is in you. See that at the end of verse 5? The Holy Spirit who was given to us. In another place, Paul said, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Glorify God in your bodies, which is God's. Now, let's just let this sink in a minute, because this is the foundation of my whole hope this morning, that what I'm doing is of any value at all. You believers who are sitting there are inhabited by the Holy Spirit of God. That is an amazing reality. He made the universe. He knows all things. He upholds the world by the word of his power. 
He is absolutely pure, absolutely holy, beyond all imperfection and all sin. He has no beginning. He'll never have any ending. He is the absolute Alpha and Omega God. And He is in you by His Holy Spirit. The Holy, Holy Spirit of God is within His people. And if you're sitting there and you say, well, He's not in me because I'm not a Christian. And it might be that the Lord would cause you to ask before we're done, how shall I receive this Holy Spirit you're talking about? Let me just give you one pointer for you to pray over. In Acts 2.38, repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And could you just stop and pray for a minute? Lord, right here I've just said that people listening to me have the Holy Spirit. And yet, knowing that there are probably some unbelievers in the room who've not been connected yet by faith, and the Holy Spirit has not been given to them. And my prayer at this moment for Christians is that you would awaken the wonder of being indwelt by the Spirit of the living God. And that you would open the hearts of unbelievers to believe in Jesus and supply them now through that faith with the gift of the Holy Spirit. And testify by that Spirit before this service is over that they are born of God. Through Christ I pray. Amen. Now the question is, how does having the Holy Spirit become a basis for my preaching about the love of God so that it becomes an experience in your life? And the answer is given in verse 5. Hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit. The love of God is poured out in the hearts of those who have the Holy Spirit by the Holy Spirit. One of the main reasons, perhaps the main reason why you have the Holy Spirit this morning is so that God, through the agency of the Holy Spirit, might pour love, his love into your life. The love of God is poured out into your life by the Holy Spirit. Let verse 5 grip you this morning. The love of God is poured into your heart by the Holy Spirit who is given to you. Here's what this verse says to me. The love of God is supernatural and divine. It is not like any love on the earth. It is in a class by itself. All human loves are just echoes of the love that God has for us and the love that God has in the Trinity for one another. But I am natural. I am not spiritual. I am not supernatural. In fact, apart from the Holy Spirit, I am spiritually dead with no living taste buds to enjoy or delight in or rest in that love. I can't spiritually apprehend that love or understand that love or grasp that love. I'm just natural. My only hope 
is the Holy Spirit. Your only hope is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is given into the lives of natural people in order that they might grasp the supernatural, that they might spiritually apprehend it and taste it and love it and revel in it and savor it and enjoy it and bathe in it and have it coursing through their lives. Now here, when I got to this point in my preparation in the message, here's what came to me. This seemed tremendously encouraging to me, especially for people who feel that because of their personality or their family background, are not able to feel loved. Are not able to enjoy what others talk about of being loved by God. Now listen carefully here because verse 5 holds a key for all of us, including you. If our families are terrible and there's been generation, generations of abuse, neglect, harshness, never any hugging, never any kissing, all kinds of manipulation. We might think, well, of course this person can experience the love of God. Look, he had two parents who touched him. They spoke well of him. They went to his ball games. They gave him gifts on his birthday. They hugged him. They kissed him goodnight. They prayed over him. They were always there for him. Of course. They will know the love of God. Now, right at that moment, we are committing a colossal error. We are belittling the love of God at that moment. Because what this verse says, verse 5 says, the love of God is not experienced as a function of how our background was. So that those who had good backgrounds, they have love poured into their lives. Those who have bad backgrounds, they can't have love poured into their lives. What this text says is, the Holy Spirit does it. It is a work of Almighty God. And I fear today that in our talk about whether we can feel love, as a function of where we've come from, we might be talking about something other than the love of God. Because the love of God is a work of the Holy Spirit who moves in. And I believe the implication of this verse is that if you don't have the Holy Spirit... You can come from 20 generations of beautiful human affection and know nothing of the love of God in your contentedness in human relationships. Nothing. And I fear that one of the things we're doing is failing to realize it's supernatural. The love of God for us is not something any parent can build into my life. 
And the danger is that I might begin to think that the good feelings I have about life because my parents hugged me is the love of God. Only the Holy Spirit pours the love of God out into the heart. So that if you don't have the Holy Spirit, 20 generations of beautifully functional family will do nothing for you. Nothing. And here's the encouragement. If you have the Holy Spirit... 15 years of sexual abuse cannot stop you from experiencing the love of God by the work of the Holy Spirit. If you had parents who never touched you, who always berated you, always put you down, never came to your things, never said, I love you, you did a good job. Do not call into question the sovereign, almighty work of the Holy Spirit. Oh, I want us to believe in the supernatural reality of the love of God. I don't want to confuse my good parents with His sovereign love. Oh, the danger for those of us who come out of good families of thinking that all the functionality of our lives is an experience of the love of God when we have never perhaps tasted of the Holy Spirit. Because it is supernatural. It is not that. It isn't that. And therefore, neither my good family or your bad family is any obstacle to the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The liberty and the power in verse 5 just stunned me yesterday. Verse 5 is a call to believe in the power of the Holy Spirit to do His work. His work is not my work. His work is to pour out the love of God in your life, whatever your background. And those of us who come from good families are in desperate need of the work of the Holy Spirit. Desperate need. Lest we confuse our life and how well it works with God and His love for us. You might even say, if you wanted to press it, that those who struggle the most are in a sense preserved from making that horrid mistake at least. Of finding ourselves at the judgment day saying, I really enjoyed life and things went well for me and so thank you God for loving me. And he says, you never knew me. You were riding on the crest of the wave of your parental affection. You never opened your life to the supernatural love of God. That would be a shock indeed. Give me the broken person any day who labors to feel a mustard seed of the love of God and really feels it than that. Verse 5 is an amazing verse. Verse 5 is an amazing verse. Hope does not disappoint because the love of God is poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Now, what has that got to do with preaching and my task here to describe the love of God for you? Well, the answer to that question is given in verses 6 to 8. And the connection between 6 through 8 and verse 5. 
Verse 6 says, for, the NIV says, you see, it's, it's a ground here, it's a basis, for while we were still helpless or weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, get this. There is a, there's a great chasm between verse 4 and 5 in one sense. Verse 5 is all about experience. Subjective, heartfelt engagement with the love of God. That's what verse 5 is about. The Holy Spirit moving in on you right there in your pew or in the quietness of your closet, moving in on you, pouring the love of God in your life so that you fill up and say, thank you. Thank you for loving me and forgiving me of my sins and opening a door of hope in my life. That's experience and that's what we all want. Verse 6 is not Christian experience at all. It's history and theology. Christ died. That's history. Whether you feel it, know it, experience it, doesn't affect it. You can't make the sun go out like that thing did up there when it went. The sun didn't go out when those blinds closed. It's out there. Whether I feel it right now on my face or not, it's out there. And that's the way verse 6 is. Verse 6 is out there and it is real and you can't change it no matter what. And the interpretation of this death is for the ungodly. So verse 6 is history. Christ died. And theology, God's interpretation of that death, is for the ungodly. Now the question is, what's the connection between verse 6 and verse 5? And my understanding is this. History, Christ's death, theology, or the word of God interpreting that death as for the ungodly, is the massive, revelatory foundation underneath the experience of verse 5. Now, the relationship between preaching and the work of the Holy Spirit is this. My task this morning and every morning is basically to take the history and the theology and explain it and display it And the Holy Spirit's task is to pour the love of God through it into your life. You learn the nature and content of the love of God from history. You experience the love of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. And both are absolutely crucial. If I claim to have experiences of the love of God that are not founded on history and true theology, that is the right interpretation of God's interpretation of history, I become cultic, emotionalistic, and fanatical. However, if I claim to understand the history and interpret the love of God in the cross, and I don't have the Holy Spirit in my life, Pouring the love of God into my heart so that it becomes a real, authentic experience in my life, I will become barren, dead, intellectualistic. Both are utterly crucial. My message this morning cannot take the place of the work of the Holy Spirit. That's what I'm getting at. My message cannot take the place of the work of the Holy Spirit 
And the Holy Spirit will not take the place of my message. My calling is to describe the love of God to you. His calling is to pour the love of God into your hearts. My calling is to point you to what Christ did. And his calling is to open your eyes to see how precious and glorious and personal it is. My calling is to make it plain. His calling is to make it precious. My calling is to make it clear. His calling is to make it dear. My calling is to take you on a tour around the lake, the bottomless lake of the love of God in Christ for you and point you to the beauty of the scenery scenery and the depth of it. His calling, the Holy Spirit's calling, is to take you in and baptize you in the love of God for you and cause you to be drenched by it, to drink it, to be filled by it. I cannot do his work and he will not do mine. What happens in this moment in the service week after week is an awesome thing if God blesses, if God comes. The central fact in this text is that Christ died for our sins, but that's not the main focus of this text now. So let me turn with you as we move toward the end here to the main focus of our undeservingness. Let's read it again. For while we were yet sinners, or for while we were still helpless, this is verse 6, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So the point here is this. There are four words in this text that describe our undeservingness. And the love of Christ is intended to be heightened and deepened by realizing that these four terrible things characterize those for whom he died. Had he died for good people? Had he died for righteous people? Had he died for lovely people or strong people? We might say he loved. But this text draws attention to the love of Christ by showing how utterly unworthy were the recipients of his love. Let's just look at these briefly. Verse 7 is an analogy with our experience. One will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone might even dare to die. So the two best candidates for love, humans will scarcely die for. A righteous man keeps the laws, is upright, does justice. It's unlikely that if he got sick, say with diabetes, and both of his kidneys failed, and somebody came to you and said, uh, it's legal now for you to give both your kidneys to him. And uh, you can go on dialysis and maybe you'll live a few years, but why don't you do that? Any takers? Give both your kidneys away? For a, a righteous man. He's a good man. He's a good citizen. Or, just to up the ante a little bit, if he, if he was a, a good man towards you, I think good there has the idea of being a benefactor. He, you know this man now. And he's been kind to you all his life. He's done good things for you. And now he's the one with total kidney failure. And maybe liver too. And they come to you and say, would you just give your life for this man? So that he can have 30 years and you don't get 30 years more? Any takers? Paul says there wouldn't be many takers. There might be some, he said. There might be some. Human love can arise to amazing feats. It can and then in verse 8, he contrasts. 
But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We were righteous. We were good. We were neutral. We were guilty. Sin means offenses against God. Offenses against his son. Look at the other three words. Two of them are in verse six. While we were still helpless. There's one. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. There's two. So now we were sinners. Verse eight. We were helpless. Verse six. We were ungodly. Helpless. Why does he say that? The word is weak. It means uh, unimpressive. Unable to do anything for Jesus. Can't make any contribution. Just, hmm. And it reminded me of 1 Corinthians 6, or 1, 1 Corinthians 1, where he said, God has chosen not many strong, but many weak, that he might put to naught that which is strong. God goes for the unlikely candidates for love, so that when we are loved, we cannot boast in being loved. That's the point. Ungodly means irreverent. Godless. The most amazing thing about that word is that in Romans 1.18 it says the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness. The wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness. And here we have God demonstrates his love for us in that Christ died for the ungodly. So how do you put that together? The love of God rescues us from the wrath of God. The cross is inserted into history in order to rescue people from the just and holy wrath of God. God does this thing. The Son doesn't rescue us from the wrath of the Father. The Father rescues us from the wrath of the Father. The last word is in verse 10. For if while we were enemies, there it is, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, will we be saved by His life. I'm going to end here as a kind of transition to where we're going, because after Easter, we're going to take this tree that we've been trying to plant and send our roots down into this deep love that Christ has for us, measured now by how unworthy we are. We're going to take this tree and we're going to begin to analyze and talk about how fruit grows on the tree. And one of the massive fruits, one of the beautiful fruits, the glorious fruits, one of the most significant fruits for bearing witness to the reality of Jesus Christ in a world like ours is the fruit described in Matthew 5.43 where Jesus said you have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy but I say to you love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you this text verse 10 is the ground in which that grows while we were yet enemies we were reconciled to God. We were neutral. We were hostile. Even if you were saved as a little child, there was in your heart a hostility towards submitting to the law of God. And today we're all struggling with the remnants of that in our life. We are insubordinate people. We don't like people telling us what to do. And we don't like God telling us what to do. And the only reason there's any spark of yieldedness in our hearts at all receiving the love of God is because the Holy Spirit is massively and wonderfully at work in our lives. And so my call to you this morning is 
sink the roots of your life down into the love of Christ. He loved you while you were weak. He loved you while you were sinner. He loved you while you were godless. And he loved you while you were enemy. And so the depth of his love is measured not only last week by the sacrifice that he made for you, but by the tremendous, thoroughgoing unworthiness that we have to be loved by him. When anybody in your life gets your goat and keeps treating you in a way that makes it hard, go back to where you came from, folks. Because you were born out of enemy love. The only reason we're in this church, the only reason we're alive, the only reason we have any faith at all is because God loves his enemies and he even dies for them in order to make friends out of them. Let's pray. One there is above all others well deserves the name of friend. His, his love beyond a brother's. Costly, free, and knows no end. Once we prove his kindness, we find it everlasting love. Father, grant us to prove your kindness now. In Jesus' name. Amen.